Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. My name is Edwina Throsby and I'm the Head of Talks and Ideas here at the Sydney Opera House. And I'm really, really pleased that we're able to be gathering today to talk about this national emergency that we find ourselves in. I'd like to thank all of the speakers today who've given up their time because um, they're good people and think that this is an important thing to talk about publicly. Um, I'd like to thank Guardian Australia, who is partnering with us on this event, and Lenore Taylor, the editor of Guardian Australia, who will be your host for this conversation. That will start shortly. And I'd also like to thank our Auslan interpreters. You might recognise Sean Sweeney. He was doing the Auslan interpretation throughout the ABC broadcasting. It was incredibly important work and he and Fran Collins are going to be translating um, this event today for you here and for everybody who's watching this via our live stream around the country. Lots of people couldn't make it here because their homes are still in bushfire-affected areas. They're all over the country because this has been such a massive catastrophe in terms of um, the distance of, of affected areas. Um, so they're joining us on the live stream. We welcome you too. One of the things that's being asked a lot in public discourse at the moment is whether this is a transformative moment in our history. Whether the complete devastation of our lands, our towns, our wildlife, our people, our economy and our future will be enough to shake up our old entrenched ways of thinking about and doing things. If there was ever an indication that things are not okay and that the current settings need to be changed, then surely it was this summer. So are we at a turning point where finally elected MPs stop arguing about the veracity of human-influenced climate change and start actually doing something about it and making policy about it? Is this going to be the end of the destructive, corrosive and totally unnecessary conflation in this country of climate change with partisan politics? This idea that doesn't exist in the UK or in Europe that if you are worried about climate change, then you're inevitably a bleeding heart lefty and there's no other option for anybody else to... This idea that, that climate change belongs on the left or the right or whatever has to stop in this country if we're going to move on. Can we imagine a situation where policy focus starts shifting away from a, a fossil fuel-based economy and export industry to something that is more sustainable. Surely we can get there. So people are saying, is this the turning point? Is this the time where we change direction? And there are good signs that it is. Sections of the media, media are no longer questioning the reality of climate change. So that's hopeful, right? But then Jim Mullen on Q&A last week reveals his bewildering relationship with the evidence and I fall back into some sort of sense of despair. But then something occurred to me. We don't actually have to wait for somebody to tell us that we're at a transformative moment. It is us that decides whether we're at a transformative moment here, because it is us that can actually demand the change from our leaders, our leaders in politics and in business, 
We can demand that change. We are citizens, we are people with resources, we have votes, we have communities, we have people that we can reach out to and form alliances with, be it people, your next door neighbours or people that you know through work. We can form these alliances and we can demand something better for our future and our country. You've all come here today because this is something that you all care deeply about. The time for complacency is over. So let's use today to have discussions, to form the connections, to start building the networks, to continue the conversations that we need to have for everybody in Australia. Thank you so much for coming. Welcome, everybody. I'm Lenore Taylor, the Editor-in-Chief of Guardian Australia, and as Edwina just outlined, we're here to discuss some pretty big, pretty immediate and pretty pressing issues that are top of mind, I think, at the moment for everyone in Australia. Uh, and we have a really fascinating panel to have that discussion with. Uh, we have Professor David Bowman, who is a pyrogeographer. No one ever told me about that in careers counselling. <laughs> and director of the Fire Centre at the University of Tasmania School of Natural Science, Sciences, uh, John Connor, who is the chief executive of the Carbon Market Institute, which speaks for businesses leading the way to a net zero emissions economy. And John was also previously the chief executive of the Climate Institute. We have Professor Danielle Selemeyer, who's director of the Multi-Species Justice Project at the University of Sydney. And we have Oliver Costello, who's a Bundjalung man who leads the Fire Sticks Alliance, aimed at spreading the understanding and use of Indigenous cultural burning to manage fires and the lands. Be before I became... <laughs> yep, welcome everyone. Before I became the editor of The Guardian, I reported and analysed politics for 30 years, and I was particularly interested, fascinated, horrified, in uh, the policy and politics of climate change, this existential problem for which there are solutions, but which the political system seem to have been pathologically unable to grasp them. This summer, catching the train back and forth between the remnants of a holiday just north of the fire zone and Guardian Australia's offices in Sydney, I spent a lot of time thinking about how often over those 30 years I'd written this stock line, scientists predict global warming will mean longer, hotter summers and increased prevalence of bushfire weather. And how, despite writing it so often, I had completely failed to grasp what that actually meant and what was happening around us. And I think um, people have been so shocked by the reality of what was happening, even though it's what scientists predicted would happen, that there is this feeling that the summer must be a tipping point. But I guess that's not guaranteed. I mean, we still have politicians in federal par parliament arguing for subsidies for coal-fired power plants. Um, we still have people suggesting that it can all be solved by, I don't know, arresting arsonists or hazard reduction burns. 
Change isn't guaranteed, and we have to imagine the size of the problem, and we have to imagine the scale of the potential solutions. So that's precisely uh, what we're here to discuss. And I'd just like to start uh, with you, John. Um, in your previous role at the Climate Institute, you commissioned some research from the bushfire CRC in CSIRO, doing quite detailed predictions of extreme bushfire days, which had some pretty clear predictions about 2020, like now. What did yeah. it say? Yeah, well, we commissioned CSIRO and the CRC for bushfires and to, uh, um, uh, to look at the five weathers and for the first time really do a detailed projection. And, and in fact, um, they actually had to, uh, to create the two new categories of very extreme and catastrophic because they actually did... So um, uh, there wasn't sufficient there to explain. And so they, they were added onto the wagon wheels that we're also familiar with. And so... I guess that's one legacy that we had. But it was, all, it was predicting that we'd, we'd be seeing more catastrophic fire weathers in 2020 and 2050, and we're, we're bang on, if not exceeding, those projections. And so that's why it's personally rather infuriating to be here, um, uh, uh, and nothing has changed uh, sufficiently here and, and abroad as well. And David, you study, I think, the interaction between fires and, and human life, how, how fires interact with life uh, and, and the diversity of life and how we plan. The scale of what we've just experienced, can you just talk us through how broadly we're going to need to think about the response to that? I mean, it's not just better building regulations and, you know, slightly different fire management practices, right? Like, we have to really start thinking about how we adapt because of the global heating already in the system. Can you just let it help us think through how broad those adaptations might have to be? Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, a lot of people haven't really been thinking deeply about bushfires. Bushfires have sort of been something in the background. This summer has been, I think, like a meteor strike in terms of its uh, shock and awe of just how a natural ecological system can be so dramatically transformed and impact a society. And I think what we will be seeing with the following government inquiries and discussion, the fact that our institutions are really no longer fit for purpose to deal with events like this. There's been so many clues, but piecing this together uh, I think is really important work in the next 12 months where we're going to have to completely rethink our relationship with bushfire uh, and our relationship with uh, attempts to uh, future-proof ourselves, something that irritates me. People talk about a new normal. A, this is not normal and it is not stabilised. We we're at the top of the waterfall and we're going over it. It's only going to get more intense. And we need to focus people's attention on that, that, you know, it's not like I just... We've swi switched into a new state. We are in a massive transition. But give me some examples. Tell, give me something tangible. What institutions? Well, what? yeah, very clear. Uh, the volunteer system isn't going to work anymore. So we probably are going to have to have a, a civil defence force of some sort. We're certainly going to have to be paying people. We're going to have to be reconciling the use of uh, reserves, reserve firefighters with professional firefighters. We've got to sort that institutional mess out. Should fire agencies alone be trying to drive this machine? How can a command and control structure 
better devolve responsibility and empower communities to do the necessary adaptation work, which is really fundamentally challenging to an institution uh, and, and also cross-cutting through government. What the hell is the role of the federal government in this? Nobody knows. Well, it did seem to change over the summer, but... Yeah, yeah that, well, it was... <laughs> you know, we had, we had a situation where there was clear ambiguity about the role of the federal government. We don't even have national fire statistics. The actual area burnt and the severity of these fires is actually a scientifically open question. We, we still have different maps for different states, even when the fire's correct. on the border. We, 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 there is no national assembly. You can't just go to a database and query what happened. We scientists are, you know, scrabbling to create that knowledge. I mean, that is just ridiculous, and that's not adaptive. What about how we organise our lives, where we live, when we take holidays, where we take holidays? Does Absolutely. That... I use the holiday example as, you know, saying, well, maybe we're going to have to reschedule our holidays, you know, and people could, like... Actually, a lot of people got it. But what I was trying to do is that if you want to do the adaptation step, something as trivial as reorganising a holiday, that's a trivial thing compared to the heavy lifting in terms of infrastructure and, and retrofitting our housing stock, which is not up to speed. The, the, if, you, if you want to scare yourself witless, go and look at the guidelines of what the defendable space around houses should be, and then go to Google Earth and interrogate most bushland suburbs. There is a complete disconnection. What are they? Well, we need a large area around houses. We need to be retrofitting Likewise. our gardens. 20 metres or so of a halo. We need to be uh, reducing fuel loads on the interface of the suburbs. There's a lot of science that we know, and the, the fire agencies know this, but the problem is, it's not being, there's no uptake. Now, do we go authoritarian and force people to do this, or do we empower communities to encourage and help them to do this? There's a whole lot of, uh, what agencies is, what's the role of local government? What's the role of state government, federal government? How are we gonna fund this? Where does insurance fit? You know, there, these are, once you, you scratch the surface, you realize that there's this enormous, uh, bag of contradictory uh, and competing ideas that somebody needs to patiently sit down and domesticate. So is the Bushfire Royal Commission cast widely enough? Because it doesn't go to most of that. Yeah, so the, the, the question of how uh, we, we do this, whether it's a Royal Commission or inquiry, it's often what I think the, uh, the political quick hit is to to, to have some sort of statement and to move on. The problem is that we're not, or move back to normality, the problem is we have to have an ad adaptation pathway and everybody's signing on that we're coming out of this and we're going into a different place that's transformative. If you have a society that's at odds with a transformative project, it's unlikely that transformative project is gonna happen. So, Oliver, when we talk about um, adaptation, a lot of people are talking about Indigenous fire management practices, but I suspect a lot of them don't actually know what they are. Can you just, in a nutshell, explain what it is that you do and how broadly applicable it is? Because I've certainly read a lot about savannah lands in the north, but much less about how applicable and how it works um, in the sorts of forests in the southeast that have been burning this summer. Sure. So, firstly, I'd just like to start by acknowledging country and paying my respects to Elders past, present 
in the future here and, and all across um, these landscapes. Um, cultural burning is about burning for country. So all these Australian landscapes have different fire relationships, so all the plants and animals have different relationships and they come together in places as ecosystems. And so our old people over thousands of years developed relationships that were really quite strong based on those values. So we saw the plants and animals as family, as kinship. And we understood that they had these different fire relationships. So we would work reciprocally with the environment to introduce fire regimes that were beneficial to those plants and animals in those places. And they're different from place to place. They vary. And, and, they, and you might see, you know, like, you might see, you know, a koala and a gum tree and think that all across Australia, the koala and gum tree have the same relationship. Well, they don't. They have different relationships in different landscapes because of their own kinship. And people have different kinship too. So one of the most important principles around cultural fire management is around cultural authority and custodianship. And so wherever you go across Australia, you know, traditionally, different custodians would have different roles and relationships and they would be in charge of that fire. And so people would, would understand that and they'd use that authority and that knowledge to guide their practice. But the knowledge is about when to burn, how to burn, what part... That's, that's the thing that varies from landscape to landscape? Yeah, and we call it reading country. So, you know, when you, you, you come into a landscape... Um, you know, you've got to understand where you are, um, who you are, so identity, all those things are really important. Um, and you can read the trees and the animals and the plants. You know, and some people have got those skills that they can move into other people's landscapes and they can support that knowledge. But it always needs to be under the authority of local custodianship. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think you actually had done some burning, cultural burning, in some of the bushfire areas that have just burned. What did you see when you went back there? Yeah, so, you know, it's been very hard over the last 10 or so years since I started the Fire 6 project to actually see cultural fire in these landscapes because of the, you know, dispossession and colonisation and institutional racism that we've seen. Um, so we have been able to kind of build relationships with some agencies and empower communities to practise their cultural burning. And so in some of those places, um, we've seen really beneficial outcomes. So, uh, for example... Um, 2018, uh, we had the Bundanon um, National Indigenous Fire Workshop, uh, which was held by the Ewan and Durrell people. So down on the south coast. Yeah, so South Arthur Wales. Boyd's residence yep. that he gifted back to the nation, Bundanon Trust. The Bundanon Trust have been really great supporters of fire sticks and the local community there. They literally gave us the property to run the fire workshop. Um, and uh, we did a burn there during the workshop. Um, the young uh, Ewan Durrell men that we worked with for, several, for over a few years led that workshop. Um, burnt over 13 days, they walked with the fire, um, carried the fire through that um, little bit of landscape there, and we went back there just after the fires, and where that fire had gone out that they'd tended for 13 days is where another fire had come in, and it had just gone out, exactly. And, you know, on one side, you had where we'd burnt, there was green grass, the, the canopy was all there. On the other side, all the canopy was scorched and everything was burnt. And how does what you do work with or against or in contradiction to what the RFS would call hazard reduction burning? Yeah, so we, we, I, don't, I don't like to think what, what we do is hazard reduction. Um, whenever you burn, you reduce fuel. Um, but because of that focus on hazard reduction, I think people miss the indicators. Um, so for us, it's about burning for values, about healthy country. And so as a result, you have a hazard reduction outcome. You have a whole heap of other outcomes. But do you work with the RFS or not? We've got relationships with RFS, and they've been quite supportive in some areas. But we'd, we'd argue that a lot of the hazard reduction programs are actually causing some of these problems because of the inappropriate fire regimes, 
that have been introduced through hazard reduction burning. Because when you do hazard reduction burning, typically, um, you know, you're just focusing on the fuel time since fire. There's very coarse indicators, and we, we respect, you know, the work that they're trying to do. We're not saying they shouldn't be doing it. We're just saying that we've got a whole heap of knowledge and practice, which is thousands of years old, that we're asking for people to support us to continue to practice. Okay, so John, there are market... <laughs> There are market mechanisms in use right now to promote exactly uh, this kind of practice, but only in parts of Australia, as I understand it. Um, what would it take and how long would it take mm. for those market mechanisms to help Oliver and people like Oliver to promote that practice in more parts of Australia? Can you just explain how that works? Yeah, so we've had a carbon market operating in Australia actually since Julia Gillard's carbon pricing mechanism. Uh, which had a cap and had a responsibility on companies to be reducing uh, their emissions, their carbon emissions, uh, and that uh, if they, so they had to come up with credits, which if either they reduce their efforts uh, or they actually had to go out and, and get equivalent, uh, off, what they call offsets or carbon reduction credits. Uh, and so uh, a system was set up uh, where uh, uh, proponents, we actually have these methodologies, uh, and there's a range of those, everything from uh, converting landfill gas to energy uh, through to uh, allowing country to revegetate. They call it human-induced... So sort of scientific formulas to figure out what can count as a credit. Yeah, so they call these methods or methodologies, uh, and uh, um, there's uh, reforestation, uh, avoided deforestation, uh, the uh, one in particular here is a savannah burning. Yeah. Uh, it took eight years to work out the science, and it's it's difficult. We were talking before. It's we've got, you know, you've got to look at year on year on year to get the the test. So of the that. science of what carbon is released and then what's sequestered when it regrows and all of that sort of calculation. Exactly, and so savannah burning is this cool burning uh, where. Um, Basically, previously, it would allow all of the grasses in particular to, to build up and it would burn hot. Uh, Oliver will talk more about this shortly, but the practice uh, which um, the traditional owners have been doing for many, for thousands of years, of burning earlier in the season, burning, burning cool. cooler. And so you can actually measure the difference between the, the carbon emissions that go up in those hot fires uh, to that which is in the cool fires. But I guess what I'm asking is, um, is it practical, is it feasible to look to those market mechanisms to spread this practice far and wide if it takes eight years to get a methodology or is it going to, you know, take eight years for it to... Look, um, there are ways in which... Um, so across these methodologies, fire has been treated in various ways and we've just had a workshop up in Brisbane uh, last month looking at um, how we can do this and we've actually got a landscape management task force. We think we can actually smooth that across those existing methodologies and do that uh, far quicker. Some of these newer ones might in southern Australia or central Australia, some proposals might take a bit longer, so we're very keen to get along as quickly as we can with the existing ones and, and, and put that. So just, just for people to finish with the carbon market, after Julia Gillard's carbon pricing mechanism came down with uh, Tony Abbott, uh, the, the, the government has continued that um, by the taxpayer paying, and so there's the emission reduction yep. fund. So that's, that is still operating and the market to still some happens, extent. Yep. So, Danielle, you were personally impacted uh, by the fires over the summer and, and you've been writing a bit about that. Can you tell us about your experience and why it's the absolute wrong question for me to ask whether you're okay? Right. Uh, so, first, I, I guess the best way to answer that is to say that I want to begin by acknowledging all of the beings who 
weren't okay, the human beings and the more than human beings and all of those who continue not to be okay because of the habitat destruction, the lack of food, the lack of shelter and the ongoing threat. So it's not just about what happened, it's about the future that we're all living into, human and non-human. And, you know, when we were chatting out there, I said to Lenore that, you know, a lot of people will say to me because they know I was living in a fire-affected area, were you okay? And the favourite question is, did your house burn down? And I live in a rainforest, so as far as I was concerned, my house was replaceable, the rainforest wasn't replaceable. So where we place value is the first thing that I think we really need to deconstruct. What is it that we're trying to preserve? So, you know, David was talking about adaptation around what we need to protect our houses, or Lenore, you were talking about when we take our holidays. But if we're taking our holidays to landscapes that have been ravaged by fires or flood, or ecosystems that are no longer functioning, or to mass extinction, then what sort of holiday are we having? And if we protect our houses, what's the world that our houses are emplaced in are the sorts of questions we need to ask. So when people say to me, are you okay? My favourite answer is, well, this little cut-out thing that I call me and this house that our property system says that is mine because I have a title to it, even though, of course, it's on unceded land, um, yes, those are okay, but you need to re-embed that within a system of relationships which are so devastated, not just by the fire, but by the drought that preceded it, and also by this perilous future that we're living into. So the whole scale of temporality, past, present and future of this set of human and more than human relationships is very far from okay. And that goes, I guess, to questions of responsibility and how we think about responsibility. Yeah, so when... So my parents are Holocaust survivors and after the Holocaust, um, a guy called Raphael Lemkin noticed that there was no name for this crime. There was no name for what we now call genocide. There's homicide, there's fratricide, there's regicide, but there was no thing. So he came up with this name, genocide, the killing of a people. We don't have a name for what's going on. So, you know, there are a few favourite ways of, of speaking about it. One is the natural disaster, which is the best get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, or there's the tragedy framing. And the tragedy framing is also, it sounds like it's not ideological, but actually saw King Lear on this stage, and there's a line from King Lear where, where someone says, I think it's Lear, like flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. Well, this is not a tragedy. This is not the gods. This is us. This is our human institutions, our political institutions, our economic institutions, our cultural institutions, to go to what Oliver was talking about. Even if we, if we continue to look at forests as something that we need to control and reduce so that we can live healthy human lives, as opposed to understanding that these are earth beings with whom we share a planet, those sorts of cultural systems that continue to be based on notions of human exceptionalism, a hierarchy that places humans at the top, we are all responsible for that. Yes, of course, the responsibility is very unevenly spread. You know, political actors bear particular responsibility. 
certain portions of the media bear particular responsibility, our economic institutions, our reliance on fossil fuels. But I think we need to have a very human-centric understanding of who is actually doing the murdering here, and it is us. But Danielle, over the summer, about in terms of the responsibility borne by all of us, that there was sort of two Australias really, people overwhelmed by the reality of what's going on and people for whom it remains quite abstract. How do we bring every... I mean, what's your thinking about how we bring everybody to an understanding of what we're facing? It's such a critical question. You know, my fear is that we bring everybody when people are literally living with the fire at the doorstep the That's way now that we right. were. But, I mean, at the doorstep. I mean, at the doorstep. I don't mean at somebody else's doorstep. Right. And, you know, Lenore, you said earlier that you wrote about the coming of the climate catastrophe for, for 30 years, but it was only this summer that you actually got, wow, the time is now. It's happening here. So I think that it is beholden on all of us, whether we are writers, whether we're scientists, whether we're artists, uh, whether we're filmmakers, whatever type of medium of communication we're working in, the old forms of communication just aren't up to the job anymore. There's a way in which we need to make, we need to render concrete what still remains abstract for many, many people. And my, my greatest fear is that human beings are extraordinarily adept at living in denial until it is upon us in a way where it's going to be too late. It's already, we, we do have to say, it is already too late. It is too late for many, many beings. It's hopefully not too late for all beings. But I think moving out of any idea that this is a future possibility to realising we are in the climate catastrophe now. You know, David said we're at the top of the waterfall and we're going down. But, you know, we don't have the paddles on the boat. We're in the white water now. And we need to learn to communicate that Does much more adeptly. Talk, talk to that? Um, so the question is... The question is that there's two Australias, Daniel wrote about there being two Australias, people who are overwhelmed by the reality and ones for whom it still remains kind of abstract. And how do we right. get to a, a consensus starting point that it's now, we have to do something about it right now? Yeah, so this, this is a real concern because we, um, you know, and maybe when we look back at this summer, um, and having somebody who was so involved in the media with this summer, there was this sort of... Um, a frenzy of everything happening and people trying to frame it. There was no... The media particularly were really struggling. How do you narrate this story? There was no human being who was actually even able to comprehend what was happening. The scale of this... Unless you were actually using satellites, as, as the scientists were. This was bigger than everybody. This was a gigantic thing. Now we're moving, although the summer's not over and there is still danger, uh, we're moving into a reframing stage and there are new narratives being constructed and there's great jeopardy here because we could start convincing ourselves that, oh, you know, we've had bushfires before and, oh, you know, throw a bit more money at it. There's some people trying to actively convince us of that. Yeah, so, so it's a really, how do we f not disempower people but 
use this crisis as a way of animating uh, the necessary adaptation steps that we need and, and of course, ultimately recognise that decarbonisation is non-negotiable. But there's a two-stream argument that's going... At, that, frankly, just going on about decarbonisation, it's, yes, it's necessary, it's not sufficient. We also have to do some really serious work about thinking about adaptation. And adaptation is going to be disruptive, it's going to challenge institutions and governments, it's going to completely reorganise ourselves, and we, we need leadership here because there are many alternatives and they are quite scary. You know, there's a libertarian alternative, which is basically, sorry guys, you're all on your own, you have to do your own thing. There's an authoritarian alternative, you know, we're not certain where this is going. Um, you know, let's, well, there's an economic rational alternative if the insurance industry is going to create enclaves of disadvantage because there will be places that are simply no sane person would buy an asset there because it's uninsurable. So we have to start thinking about how we're going to plan and deal with this and are we going to shoehorn the responsibility back to the individual or are we going to take the communitarian spirit that was expressed during the fire crisis and, and ride that wave. I, I like to say after the bushfire, everybody, during the bushfire, everybody's a socialist. And then, you know, how long does it take to go back to the school of hard knocks and say, well, you know, sorry, it's your, you know, because that's actually the sort of society we're running. So we're in these weird, uh, this framing and reframing moment, very, very important. And what comes out of the next six months is really setting us up for the next inevitable uh, disaster, how well we're going to perform. And that's what I worry about. But that does take us to some broader questions, right, about, about how, um, how best to push forward political action and to break the sort of brain-dead political deadlock we've been yeah. on this, in on this for a decade or more. There's the sort of, I guess you could call it the Zali Stegall School. She's just introduced this climate bill to try and reset the political debate and bring everybody along with her. Uh, and she's asking everyone to lobby their local member. And basically, uh, she's relying on you know, the good intentions and the goodwill of good people in the parliament across parties to get on board and at least set a direction, reset a direction for climate policy. Or I guess there's people who've sort of given up on the political process and joined Extinction Rebellion or, you know, just take to the streets and force change. They're not necessarily either or options, but they are, there is some tension there. What, what do you think, John? What's the best way for people to exercise agency and push this forward? Yeah, what do we need all of the above, maybe? If I can come back to your, 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 earlier, your first question, and then I'll yeah. uh, come to that, because I think what's very important, uh, what's happened over this summer, is that we have seen broad acknowledgement that climate change is at least a factor in these fires, and that's across the political spectrum. And so for me... Uh, um, <laughs> Well, even uh, some of the National Party and others uh, have recognised that, that as well, um, and certainly the Prime Minister has, and, the, and uh, those in, many in the Liberals. So, and I think once you actually acknowledge that, then this, you, you actually need to end this phony idea that there's hazard reduction and emission reduction mm. are separate things. Once you acknowledge that climate change is a factor, once you acknowledge that the fact that we, that carbon emissions have got us to an average of over one degree um, warming, that 40% extra increase in uh, greenhouse heat trapping gases up there, it, it means hazard reduction, uh, emission reduction is hazard reduction. And actually even more importantly is that 
um, we're now in this case where we're going over the waterfall or in, in, in this crisis, is a word I use rather than emergency, that we actually have to, uh, we are now in a situation of, of repair. And I think it's actually a stronger framing, in fact, than getting to carbon neutrality. You just have to offset stuff and you become neutral, or even in terms like sustainability. This is a repair job. And on one level, I think it's more exciting and engaging framing. We're in the biggest, roll up your sleeves, biggest repair job in human history. We've got to do land repair and our relation to land. But we've actually got to do climate repair as well. And so that's, that's uh, um, actually uh, ultimately getting to net zero emissions and then uh, below, stripping it out of the atmosphere. Now, is our body politic ready for that? Um, at the moment, it's not passing the tests in flying colours, but we are seeing uh, things dislodged. I think we are seeing moderate um, uh, liberals and conservatives um, now realising that we've got to get to net zero emissions at least. Uh, we're, we're, so we are seeing these real debates and uh, very uh, broad across the business community recognising we've got to do that. And, and what Zali Stegall is trying to do is actually just set up some basic institutions and some frameworks and accountability and some transparency so there, into which we actually brought back and we have to have this conversation on a regular basis. Mm. And, and we are seeing uh, the Business Council of Australia, uh, others who've um, had a check at history and some of this uh, in the past, you and I have lived through it, um, I welcome the fact that they're backing that bill. Does anyone else want to buy on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a difficult question. As you said, I think there's a there's got to be a mix of strategies because, as I said, there's an ecology of, of causes as well as an ecology that's being affected. Uh, in, in the activist world, there's a tool that some people here might know called the spectrum of allies, where you map, you know, these are the people who are totally on your side, these are people who are kind of on your side, these people are neutral, these are people who are against you, and these are the people who are dead against you. And, and activists know you don't work on those people. You don't work on those people at the really extreme because they're never going to come along. Now, the problem we're, that we're facing is that there's a toxic alliance between some of that... Um, it's not just ultra-conservatism, it's religious fundamentalism and the coal industry and the Murdoch press. And, and I think we need to name that. I think we need to name the type of... Uh, cultural, economic and political interests that are at stake there, and then I think we need to massively organise on the other side, build alliances, yes, across difference, across political difference and across some ideological difference, certainly across rural and urban, that's got to be critical right now. I think we've got a moment in this country where there's more of an alliance between urban and rural communities than there has been in a very long time, and I think that we can build really productively on that. But I think that we need to um, recognise that, as John said, we cannot just bypass the political system because they create incentives and institutions within which economic, cultural and other types of actors are operating. So we need to be working on that political system. Yeah, I think it's a wake-up call um, for everyone. People are dealing with these, you know, like firsthand the crisis as it's happening or in how it's affected them and others are seeing it from afar and not a lot of people are empathising with that. And for me, you know, we're not, the message that we're trying to share is about um, how we come together, about how we understand our role as custodians. Um, everybody here has a role. Um, there's First Nations people that have been here for thousands of years that have understood that <laughs> role and practised that role. So. 
we're not, we don't feel like we're fighting um, you know, a seen or unseen enemy. We feel like we're reaching out and asking for people to listen to us. Um, I think a good analogy is people that saw Victor on Q&A the other night talking about, let us drive the car. Um, I'd say that we're in the car um, right now in a lot of situations and we're, we're asking the driver who may be asleep at the wheel, may be distracted by the GPS because it's got the wrong data, um, maybe they're you know, trying to avoid the crisis that they're about to crash into, but for whatever reason, they're not listening to us and we're saying, hold on, we're here to help. Wake up, you know, give us a go um, because we're not just asking to drive the car that you're driving, we actually made the car. Um, yeah. We know how it works, like we're, we engineered it, um, you know, from like the relationships that we forged with the land for thousands of years, um, you know, we've got the manual, it's the car, you just have to understand how the car works. And so, you know, these are, you know, like, it's a real thing that, that what we're talking about doing is actually changing the way we think about engaging in the landscape, understanding the role of custodianship is critical for all, all living things, and it's all our ancestors know, all, all our DNA knows what that feels like, because all our ancestors go back to custodianship. And through colonisation and dispossession and the political apparatus that's been constructed, um, we've lost our way. And, and this is, you know, this is a not a new story for us. This is an old story. There's plenty of stories, all old people have these stories about when fire, when we learn about fire and what happens in people run off with the fire. And that's what we're seeing. These landscapes being destroyed because people have run off with the fire. Um, and so we need to understand that law. And back to what you were saying about omnicide, which I'm trying to get my head around, I see, I see plants and animals, you know, in their place being wiped out. That's a crime because we actually have laws and our old people, and we're trying to practice them now, have laws in place to stop that from happening. And we have been not able to follow and practice those laws because other laws have come in and displaced those laws. They're crimes. And people need to understand that. Things that have happened this summer should never have happened and hopefully will never happen again if people start to follow the laws of the land. I just need to quickly say something I neglected to say at the beginning and should have. Uh, when we've concluded our discussion, we are going to open it up for questions from the floor. In the first instance, we'd really like to take those via a system I'm told is called Slido. And I think there's a... There we go. There's a Slido for that. Um, so if you would like to submit a question, it will come directly to the tablet here. And when it's time for Q&A at the end, I can ask it from the tablet. Sorry, I should have said that at the beginning. Um, can I uh, just sure. I mean, just tell a story? Um, uh, which I think illustrates this from before these current fires. I was up uh, in Cairns promoting the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation and these are the guys who have actually uh, been pioneering um, some of the savannah burning and actually got a marketplace going there. And I, it was just tremendous because we had a number of the tra traditional owners um, from that country up around Cape York. Uh, uh, they were there. They are getting benefits. They were actually getting financial flows from this carbon market. And so the fact that we actually have built this system, and it's through politics and through laws, built a system where actually these financial benefits can flow. And what was really interesting was that um, they had a long ag force who represents all the graziers uh, up there. Not um, your normal sort of hippie, greeny uh, characters and stuff, but they were signing an MOU with the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. So this was actually changing some of the, not just the power dynamic, but the economic 
dynamic. The political economy was changing because the, these graziers saw, hello, here's an extra revenue stream, um, and, but if I can actually work it and work with the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation, they've got a peer-to-peer a, um, -peer, uh, uh, reviewing system which is actually from the, the Indigenous communities, get, which got a premium in the marketplace, then they'll be better off. And so it was a win-win, but getting direct benefits to the traditional owners. And that happens because of markets, that happens because of politics, that happens because of laws, that happens because of changing realisation of what we can do if we actually work together and build on, on this repair job. I just want to go back to something that um, Danielle said before because it's something that certainly concerns me a lot in my job as editor, and that is the danger of this debate becoming hyper-partisan. Um, I think it really works in the interests of denialists and people who have a, a vested interest in preventing action on global heating to make this a matter of ideology or a tribal allegiance matter rather than an issue of science and facts. And I mean, this is certainly something I struggle with because I do commission stories to rebut obvious untruths or, 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 or uh, misreporting. But every time I do that, I'm, I'm in a way helping the idea that this is somehow contested and I'm not commissioning stories about the science and the facts of it. I'm just interested in what people think about that because you know, certainly from my point of view, it's really important that we don't allow it to become a culture war because it's not a culture war. It's facts, it's science. If, if I could just say something, um, I've spent 40 years of my life studying fire ecology. I've worked in Northern Australia, I've worked right across Australia and I now uh, primarily focus in Tasmania. And I can tell you one simple truth about fire ecology, and fire ecology is really complicated, it's place-based, it's nuanced. And I think that we've got to be really careful about um, seductive master narratives, and that the solution is going to be to avoid that tribalism. Tribalism feeds on a seductive master narrative, is actually place-based solutions which actually have a role for everybody who has a stake in that place. If it becomes exclusive to particular groups, it's going to become divisive and it'll actually be unsustainable and counterproductive. And the trick, the political leadership we need, which I think probably will be found in local government, but maybe in self-organising local communities, is going to be finding a way of bringing place-based solutions which recognise Indigenous management, but by the same token, Indigenous uh, practitioners have to work with non-Indigenous people. Not, you know, we, we do have land ownership, we do have water resources that need to be protected, we do have complex infrastructure that we can't allow to be burnt down. And if we fragment, fragment that and also champion, you know, it's all a matter of more prescribed burning, well, Actually, that's ridiculous because you can't do prescribed burning in many environments. Or it's all a matter of just allowing Indigenous people to do all of the fuel management. There aren't enough Indigenous people who have the capacity, they're not properly funded to do it, they're not trained to do it, and to get that capacity would take decades and we have months to get our act together. Months, handfuls of months, because this is pressing in on us. So. I would really urge everybody to go back to their local communities because that's really where sanity can prevail because we can talk about that hill, that place, that value, these people, and tools and information, apps, and honest information about the risk 
to allow people to make serious decisions about their enterprises, their homes, their communities, their schools. They have to be empowered. And the crisis we have at the moment is, do we go the full command and control? We know what's good for you. <clears throat> and then you have to ask the question, fine, you do that, but what's the budget? Or the devolution, which means that we are losing control and we have to give resources back to the community. That's the crisis we're in. And that will, that is a political problem, and it's a political problem that may or may not survive given the atmospherics we've got. Oliver, do you want to...? Yeah, I, th I agree that there is a really, really important tipping point here around finding that balance and supporting local custodianship, local communities is critical. I disagree that, um, that we can't do it. Aboriginal people have been doing this for thousands of years. Um, you know, there is a really strong movement um, of Indigenous fire practitioners across Australia. Uh, I think a lot of the work that's been demonstrated in the north in a pretty narrow window of time has demonstrated that we have a lot of capacity. Um, and we need to support that. Um, we're willing to share um, a lot of what we know. I think we're being very generous over and over again in our customs and practices, sharing and sharing and sharing, in a prevailing, in a prevailing wind of take, take, take. So, you know, there's not much more we have left to give um, except our knowledge and our wisdom. And so we're asking that, you know, communities that want to work with First Nations fire practitioners, put your hand up um, and work with us. Um, we're happy to share... Um, but we also need to be supported. We need our custodianship recognised and resourced. We, we need a new economy. Um, we had an economy here that worked very well for us. We looked after the land and we had food, fibre, shelter, culture, relationships with the land, which were very rewarding for us. There's new economies now which don't work for us. And so we're trying to work out how we can adapt as we've been doing so for thousands yep. of years into a new economy. And I think it's really important that we understand that that legacy of dispossession needs to be overcome so we can continue our cultural practices. I, I guess um, I understand these responses in terms of adaptation, but there's still the question of how we get past the roadblock of um, federal policymaking, actual reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, uh, regulatory policies on uh, manufacturing industries and the emissions that they create. Uh, I, I'm interested in how you, we think we can circumvent them, go through them? Like, how do we get past the, the federal political roadblock? I well, mean, that was your day job for many years at the Climate Institute, and it was what I wrote about for many years, and I don't think either of us got we very crack, We haven't cracked the <laughs> nut, have we? No, but, um, uh, but we did. I mean, I think it is important uh, to uh, remember that we did actually have a, a system in place where we had a cap on uh, emissions and that we had companies taking responsibility for their emissions and emissions were declining and the economy was growing. Uh, um, I think it is important to recognise the architecture that we have now, in fact. Mm -hmm. And so I've written in The Guardian about that um, the, the government says it wants to evolve its policy and, in fact, it actually has a number of opportunities to do so, particularly this year. It's promised uh, to, to determine a long-term strategy and it's promised to do that before the election and also promised it uh, to the Pacific uh, community. Um, it is actually promised to uh, be reviewing the safeguard mechanism, which is a, um, the mechanism which has still got some compliance responsibilities on our biggest emitters. So well, we do... would want to review that because everybody who exceeds their safeguard gets a higher safeguard, so it's not safeguarding well, they, very much. They have, um, it's a pretty small safeguard market that 
I have to have there, but, there are, but it is important to understand we do have um, compliance responsibilities on our biggest emitters. It's about, the question is, what for? Uh, and so uh, our argument is that actually, that actually can, you can move the baselines which drive that safeguard forward. There is a technology roadmap that the, the government is preparing, and so they're beginning to think beyond, because we've got to think beyond just energy in this equation. We've got to look at agriculture, we've got to look at transport, we've got to look at these other sectors which are some of our biggest emitters. And they're about to come out with a technology roadmap. They've had some experts doing some reviewing of uh, some of them, the way in which the carbon market, which has been driven by the taxpayer fund for the last few years uh, under the coalition government. So there are ways in which this can, can move forward. Now, I'm, uh, well, you know, have heard me say this before, I'm a professional optimist. My, my job is to try and find these ways forward and how that they can move. Now, um, that's worked a couple of times and uh, hasn't worked a few more times, but there are uh, opportunities there, and that's why it's, it is important that you go speak to your local member. It is, this is what actually counts. People through the front door of your local member's office, writing individual letters, engaging, and I think there is a risk that we do get hyper polarised, I forget the exact word, um, because, I mean, the thing that I've tried to work on uh, and the Climate Institute and now the Carbon Market Institute, this is actually about businesses trying to find solutions and trying to find a place to get out of the trenches um, and get out of the culture war, which we have to acknowledge we have got. I mean, it's kind of like Boy Scout stuff. You know, you've got to hate renewable um, energy, have that badge on to be a, a true conservative and, you know, um, to, and to really hate... Um, carbon pricing or, or, or um, market solutions to, to be a, a true lefty. So um, we've got to move beyond that. But is there, um, maybe Daniel might want to talk to this. I mean, a lot of the, of the actual policy levers for these issues are actually in the hands of the states, transport policy, um, uh, electricity generation, land use. Perhaps this, and most of the state governments do have net zero by 2050 targets, so perhaps the states are a way of circumventing a federal roadblock, which I'm slightly less op optimistic about. Than oh, I think the states, and to go to what David and Oliver were talking about at the local level, you know, place-based solutions where people have, where there's an at-stakeness about the decision-making process, that's a good way to get around ideology, right? When, when your town or, or your river that, that ecosystems and people are dependent on is at stake, we look at the mess around the Murray-Darling. You know, right now we have an opportunity that um, the pl plans to irrigate the Matawara-Fitzroy River in northwestern Australia. You know, that's an opportunity to actually look at place-based solutions, to look at what's, what's, there's a coalition of six Aboriginal nations on the Matawara River that are already at working at that, for them to be working with local government and then at state government, so to build from the ground up rather than the top down. And then, of course, we have to be working on federal government so it doesn't get in the way, which it's getting in the way now. But I, I really do think that place-based solutions from a very local level where there is concrete problems that are going to take people away from ideological arguments is a, is a, is a very good way in. And I think there are just on the states, sorry, to, to come through. I mean, it is important to acknowledge that, and, um, yes, all the states now have either 
aspirations or formal goals for net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, a number of the states, are, and Victoria is going through a process of, it's, it's got a process and accountability, kind of like Zali Stegall's bill is there, and, and they're working out their budgets for that. We've just seen the Queensland government uh, launch what's called the Land Restoration Fund, and so they're actually creating uh, markets and, and uh, opportunities to, to reward um, broader than just the carbon outcomes. It's actually other environmental, indigenous, other outcomes they can, they can uh, uh, benefit from. So there's um, applications open now for that. Um, New South Wales is, is looking hard at this as well. So it's crossing the political spectrum at the state level. And that's what actually helped drive John Howard ultimately to back an emissions trading scheme back in 2007. Well, except he then wrote in his autobiography that he only did it because he was worried about the political consequences and he never really believed it. But he did it. He did it because the, st the states were doing that and business were getting freaked out because they were seeing this patchwork quilt and business does actually want a more uh, efficient system for how you might deal with that. And so those state initiatives are important tensions in the system and hopefully can lead to stronger and clearer federal policies as well. Can I just go to what you said about, you know, John Howard making a decision because of electability? You know, we do still live in, a, in at least a nominal democracy. And I think if, if electability is completely dependent on moving away from the ideological investment in climate denial, then that will make a difference. You know, there has to be a mass democratic movement that will be completely targeted on demanding that both the major parties, yes. and let's talk about both the major parties, because the other party isn't doing too well on the coal debate at the moment either, that, that nothing is going to matter unless we get this one right. No ideological arguments are going to be even left standing. And I think that we have to be building mass democratic movements that demand that no, no member and no government is going to get elected as long as they have a climate denial policy or even a climate denial wing that is pulling them in that direction. I think organising mass democratic movements we're seeing it happening in the States at the moment. We're not seeing it happening in the same way here, and I think that's something that we need to do. What about... <laughs> what about the role of business in all of this? Because one of the things that I get eternally frustrated by is how good we are at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. I think Ross Garno is right. We can be a renewable energy superpower. Mm. We have all the elements to thrive um, ecologically and economically in a low-carbon world, and we just keep taking the opposite path. But it does seem like there are signs of change in the business community. I don't know if anyone wants to comment on yeah, that. Yeah, again, uh, uh, I'm seeing a, a veering into thinking this is just simply a, a carbon emissions problem. Uh, and it's, it's a lot worse than that because we've got uh, in, in the planning and the design of our suburbs and cities and insurance, the exposure that goes with that. Um, we've got to start thinking through the fact that in California, there are now large areas that are uninsurable. Mm. And that has you know, incredible consequences, but it also opens up business opportunities mm. to retrofit or to have maybe finer uh, insurance risk um, assessment where maybe new players can come in and, and think that they can manage these risks. So we, we've, we don't want to just think that it's all just about turning carbon down. It's actually dealing with the problem we've got. How are we going to manage the mess we've got? And don't let the uh, 
the, the dependence on government to just during a fire crisis. Another amazing magic trick is money is unlimited. It's just unlimited. Mm. Nobody talks about a budget or a threshold. I mean, imagine what would happen if you had, well, we have a firefighting budget. We've exceeded our firefighting budget. We don't do any more firefighting. It just stops because we do that to lots of other things in society but we don't do it during a fire crisis. What would happen if you had a leverage that for every dollar you spend firefighting, you have to spend $2 on fire management? Mm. And, you know, a large fraction can go to Indigenous people. Imagine how transformative that could be, but mm. we're not thinking of it in an economic way at all. Mm. But on the question of business and emissions reductions... Yeah, definitely. I, mean, I, think, I think it's what has changed, and um, uh, is that we're seeing so many more uh, drivers from the private policy uh, pushing for, for uh, the transition. Uh, and so we're seeing um, insurers, but we're also seeing investors. So um, superannuation funds, and this is where you as uh, members of superannuation funds is really important, where you can be hassling your superannuation fund to be very active in how your funds are being managed. They're realising they're managing for 20, 30 years, and that's horizon's starting mm. to look pretty scary. Consumers are making demands across a whole lot of things. And then and consumers can, in, in, a, in a range of things. But that's, so the investors in the price of capital is starting to change. And so you're starting to see this greater agency and starting to see switching off funding, other things. But there's business actually realising, recognising that there are some opportunities there. Now, hydrogen's all of a sudden become very uh, exciting. Um, so uh, there are a range of other opportunities. We've got the significant renewable car carbon farming, we've got this, the landscape. Ross Garneau writes about this as well. So there's some opportunities within that. But we've got these other private sector drivers. We've got financial regulators, Reserve Bank and others now really worried about this as well. So those drivers are driving business into a transition and there are companies leading this and, and are actually pushing for this as well. Can I, I just want to comment because you started off, Lenore, by asking David about, you know, the way that we're imagining adaptation is just too narrow. I think that the way that we're imagining economics is also too narrow. Um, you know, and at risk of being the communist on the stage, I think as long as, as, long as we think that all we need to do is change the object of capital investment, but keep in place the levels of inequality, and the type of concentration of wealth that we have, we're just going to be delaying the problem. Yeah, maybe we will become a solar powerhouse. But those things can go together. I mean, that's the whole idea of a Green New Deal, right? To yeah, but we have to be time. talking about that, right? We can't just be talking about how do our super funds move to a different type of investment but not be talking about the concentration of capital in particular hands or the way in which the capital st structure itself generates systematic inequalities on the basis of class, race, gender, etc. So if we're going to take this as an opportunity, and I actually loathe the language of opportunity because we're dancing on the graves of many, many beings. So we have to be very careful about talking about it as an opportunity. But if we're going to be talking about transformation, I think even though we've got urgent tasks ahead of us, you know, we have tomorrow to act, not six months or 15 years, we also need to be thinking about what are the much more structural transformations that we need to be able to start to imagine in our economic and political systems. So that, you know, Oliver's talking, been talking about 
the systematic um, exclusion of Indigenous people, but it's also the systematic exclusion of Indigenous knowledges because Indigenous knowledges understand the world in a particular way, which is abhorrent to the logic of colonisation, which is a logic of domination and extraction. So those are big changes to be asking for, but unless we're thinking about them and reimagining what an economic, cultural and social system can look like, which is not based on extraction and domination, then all of the, all of the recalibrating where investment goes is only going to get us so far. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert on how, how business works and how they think, but I guess what I'm feeling, like what I'm seeing happening is that, yeah, the, you know, there is that opportunistic sense around business, but there's also the reality of the risk and the liability that businesses are being left with in this changing environment and, you know, atmosphere. So I think that's the real challenge that, that, that we all have to come to terms with is that how does it affect us and then what can we do to make change? And I think that making change element is about solutions. Um, so it is, to me, about supporting, you know, community-led initiatives, investing in them. You know, like, when I first started Fire Sticks, there was no bucket of money, and there still isn't a bucket of money. It's because we're not doing it for money. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do, and people need to be doing the right thing. And that's what everyone needs to be asking themselves. What are the actions that they can take right now? We do live in a, a democratic and capitalistic system where people make decisions by who they vote for and what they buy. Well, wake up everyone, start using the decision-making abilities that you have. It's really obvious to me. It, it, it is an important discussion about, well, what do we value? And I think, but what we are, uh, and it's a question about how much it's actually having the impact, but we are having now, uh, we've got richer uh, indicators with the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which actually do put a broader dashboard. So we're not just looking at the speed, we're actually looking at uh, resources and relationships. And so there are indicators that some, not all, are willing to hold themselves accountable for. So how we build that system more and integrate that more, we are seeing that these richer, uh, a, a range of ways in which we can build value and recognise value, and I think that's important to, so to bear in mind. So we're nearly out of time uh, for our discussion before we go to questions, but I just wanted to introduce kind of somewhat belatedly, but I think an important question. So far we've been framing this discussion around net zero emissions by 2050, by uh, around emission reductions and adaptation, but there is another concept we need to think about if we're going to get where we need to go, and that's negative emissions, right? Does mm. someone want to go to that? Yeah, well, I mean, that's six uh, minutes? That's, well, that's the concept of drawing down out of the atmosphere. Yeah. We've actually, so as I said, it's, um, we've not human history has not seen the levels of carbon dioxide and heat-trapping gases that we've seen. So we actually have to, um, uh, and we're danger now. So we've got to draw down as well as getting to net zero. So there are a range which you do that, that we've talked about, the, the sort of natural into the landscape, um, to tree planting and savannah burning, different different things. There are um, in bigger industrial scales. So um, we've still got to look to the carbon capture and storage about putting this stuff back where we've dug it all out from and, and, and putting it away, because there are safe ways and how you do that industrially. But there are also incredible range emerging now about how we might put CO2 and drag it out of the atmosphere, put it into cement, put it into other products that we're making and things. So that, this is actually about valuing carbon at the end of the day. It's not about carbon pricing. It's actually about valuing carbon and valuing carbon reduction. And, and once we get that, we'll see a whole range of ways we can, uh, we can do that and build into, into a range of products as well. 
Yeah, I just think uh, one of the things I'm concerned about is that uh, there's so much opportunity to argue the toss and to get involved in philosophy and get distracted about who's better, you know, and it really plays into what Leonor was saying, that this is a highly charged atmosphere, and that's why I think examples in reality, I like going into the bush, I like talking to country, I like interacting with reality. What we need to do with the bushfire situation is to confront reality, go back to reality and try different things. There's no one answer to this problem. Um, and it will be a real shame if it floats off into some sort of theoretical, you know, or philosophical discussion. I want to be able to take people, say, around Hobart and say, we as a community have made this dangerous place safe and we've had these benefits and we can walk and feel and smell this place. That's what we need to do everywhere. And until we're at that scale, there's a risk that we're just going to float off and be distracted and then get smashed once again. And we can... And I can take you to places right now and, and show you that, where we've had a little bit of support, a little bit of investment. We've had this, this amazing outcome. And that's, I guess, the proposition, is we do need to drag down carbon from, you know, from the atmosphere, but that's actually, like, growing stuff, mm -hmm. you know? Like, that's actually doing really positive things. So it's, a re, it's realigning our values in our economy so that we're actually investing in people that are doing good things. They're actually looking after the country. They're actually looking after the society that they live in so that people understand those values and practices. All people have been doing it for thousands of years. And it's not just... The proposition of fire sticks isn't just about burning. It's about a different way of thinking and learning and doing um, and demonstrating that. You know, and that's, that's where we get our power through practice because we can do it we can show people we can we can understand these things and we can demonstrate that so we need more examples of that and you know it's not there are other technologies out there it's not just fire but there's a whole heap of work that needs to be done and I think those values frameworks that all people can relate to because all their ancestors go back to understanding those things it's just that they've been lost along the way and so that's an opportunity that we have now to actually realign ourselves. Um, you know, wake up, we're, we're living in a, in a different place than we thought we were, um, and start to practice um, ways of being and ways of doing things that are actually more beneficial, not only to us, but also to our fellow beings, uh, wherever they are. Can I just add, just building on what Oliver's saying, is, you know, we do have technology for taking carbon out of the atmosphere, and that's called trees. And right now, we have legislation in Queensland and New South Wales which massively increases deforestation. So, yes, we need to be building the technologies that are going to directly alter the future situation, but we also need to be deconstructing the legislative frameworks that well, are... There's actually a discussion that as a result of the bushfires, it would be wise to... Um, is the land clearing law. Absolutely. We had, we had our political representatives saying, clearly there's too much fuel load, we need to deforest. You know, mm -hmm. handing, handing, the for, handing capital forestry invest, investors exactly what they wanted on the plate, destroying our, our 
fellow earth beings who are helping us to decarbonise the environment and setting us up for an even worse bushfire season next year or in two years or in three years. And we, and we do need to name that. You know, I hear what you're saying, Lenore, about not being, not trying to make a hyper-partisan debate even more uber-partisan. But at the same time, we need to call out policies that are clearly from every science-based, earth-based, indigenous-based, you know, place-based, going to be destructive of mm. what, what all of us want for Which our lives. Which is what we do every day. Um, not unsurprisingly, given the conversation we've been having, we have a lot of questions, so I'm going to go to questions now. And the first one is from Anonymous. What is the best thing I can do as an individual to help the climate crisis from getting worse? Mm. Who wants to take that one? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, you're a citizen, a consumer, and at least a superannuation member. That's, um, the rest I don't care about too much, but you can, as you say, a citizen... Um, act not only talking to your political representatives, but, but join groups, join um, uh, uh, organisations that are dealing with that. As consumers, be conscious about what you're, you're buying. And as, as a superannuant, um, hassle your superannuation fund to be taking an active approach on that. There'll be three things. I would say get politically organised. Uh, you know, yes, individual choices and consumer choices are of value but the problem is institutional, and we're only gonna shift institutions through political organisation. We have you know, such a breakdown of civil society. We used to have religious organisations where people were networked. We don't have those anymore. Many people feel disenfranchised from political parties. But get organised with whether it's lock the gate or whether, you know, whatever your, whatever your flavour is, Extinction Rebellion, the Labor Party, the Greens, but get organised so that you can collectively bring about institutional change. I think that's the most important thing for all of us to be doing. Does anyone else have a view on that one? Yeah. I, I think it's um, yeah, education, like educate yourself around things you can do, um, advocacy. Um, so once you've got this education around you know, things you can do, advocate to others about the things that they can also do to help you achieve the things you are doing. So then you're into leadership, then you're starting to lead. We can all lead, um, but we also, also need to be able to step back as well and let others lead. It's a reciprocal relationship, leadership. Many people don't understand that. That's the problem with leadership. And the other thing is, become custodians. You know, take on custodianship. Understand that you don't own everything and you don't need to. You can actually just support things to happen in a good way by being respectful, taking responsibility and reciprocating. The, the next question is also from Anonymous. How can we ensure we do not leave out those people whose lives will be severely impacted by change from fossil fuels to renewables? What language do we use? I, think well, that, I was just going to say, I think that we just need to make a commitment to support people to adapt. And, you know, there's new economies that need to be created in these landscapes where people are going to find challenges because of the change. We just need to commit to that. And, you know, like... Land management, for example, you know, there's so much land management needs to happen now. Um, why aren't we investing in that? Why aren't we supporting, you know, like I would say support custodianship and First Nations people to lead so we can educate and support people to become good land managers um, so that they don't get left behind. Um, there, are, there are, is resilience in communities and that people will make sure that they're looked after. Um, did 
Does anyone want to? I'm not quite that? sure to how to answer the language part of that question, but I think if we're interested in ensuring that um, no particular groups or people are systematically excluded, we need to be building radical democratic institutions at the local level that give space for representation and inclusion. So right now, we have a pretty thin representative democracy where for most people, that's voting. Once every four years. Once every four years. But there are, you know, political scientists and political theorists have explored a whole range, as have many communities, it's not just at the expert level, have explored a whole range of forms of deliberative democracy that make space for broad representation, and that has to be uh, curated in a way that recognises radical power inequality. So, for example, it's not about who has the loudest voice or who's willing to stand up in a room, but to build representative structures so that you make sure that no human or non-human group fails to be represented in decision-making processes. A question from Ian, a practical question for David Bowman. Why advocate 20-metre uh, buffer zones when local RFS captains say that 95% of houses that burn are satellite by embers that can be blown kilometres? Well, there's mm. the, the research has shown that it's um, the gardens and the condition of the bush is very important, but the question of ember attack and retrofitting houses to withstand embers is absolutely critical as well. And, the, you know, with the modern building design, houses are more likely to survive than the older building stock, but we've still got a long way to go with ember storms. And the question really is, how do we do that retrofit of our gardens, our bushland and our building stock? And how do we do that in a just way um, and that's really, you know, on the table. Do we let individuals wear the cost or do we try to find a way to help people optimise the solution? Again, it's a local place-based solution, so that's where local government is going to become really important because, you know, just a particular rule may or may not be appropriate depending on the environmental context. So, you know, we could argue about you know, the width of the buffer and so it really depends on the bush you're surrounded by. So that comes back to these place-based solutions and empowering local governments and empowering the communities to do the necessary retrofit work. Um, I have a question from Melanie, which I think is best for Oliver. Are there places and situations where it's too late for cultural burning? I don't think so at all, no. Um, that's you know, part of the challenge that we've had for, you know, since I started doing this, the, you know, perception that, um, that the knowledge is lost, that the landscape's changed, um, and I just simply, you know, see it differently because I've been able to practice it differently. We've been able to reintroduce cultural fire regimes in the landscapes where they haven't existed. And we're not just talking about burning. Like, there's all whole of different fire relationships. And in some situations, we're actually not talking about burning the vegetation. We're talking about burning around it or using fire to protect it or, or suppressing fire. There's a whole heap of different relationships. So the main thing is to understand that our old people and we still today have a whole heap of values in the landscape that are fire sensitive. You know, so, it, you know, there might not have been a house on the hill which is definitely going to see fire every so often. But there is now. And in those similar situations, there's cultural sites that have been there for thousands of years that we've protected for thousands of years. Um, so we just understand that you just have to adjust your knowledge systems and adapt. That's what we've been doing. Like, 
the way fire has been introduced into these landscapes has evolved over thousands of years. So we're not saying let's burn this lot, we'd burn it 250 years before, you know, Cook, you know, flew, um, sailed past. We're saying you've got to read the country now and burn the country the way it's supposed to be burnt now. That's how we do our methodology. And this one might be good for Danielle. It's from Tom. Why do we save single houses at the expense of entire ecosystems? Should we change our fire management priorities? I think that's a great question, and I think that comes back to who gets represented, right? So if we have representative systems where the only parties who have a voice are humans, then it's only going to be the greenies who are going to be arguing for the protection of ecosystems. If we had a representative democracy where beings other than humans also had a voice, then maybe we would be making decisions in, in juster ways. And if you think about, you know, what is, what is at the core of the democratic idea? One of the principles that is at the core of the democratic idea is the idea of, it's the all-affected principle, right? That if you're affected by a decision, you should have a say in that decision. Decisions about uh, economics, decisions about fossil fuels, all sorts of political decisions that we're making are having profound effects on ecosystems as well as on humans. So if we're going to be true to the all-affected principle of democracy, then we need to redesign our democratic systems so that beings other than humans also have a representative voice. I know that's a radical proposal, but we're in a radical moment. David, do you have a view on... David? Do you think, do you want to talk to that question about whether the priorities need to change? Um, the question of how do we change our priorities, I, well, I, I know I'm banging on about the like whether we, the question was we save a house and sacrifice a whole ecosystem, should we change our priorities? Well, I mean, you know, ideally the house is integrated into the ecosystem, you can have it all, it shouldn't be an either or, that's... So the, the retrofit, and that's, you know, the idea of permaculture, of integrating human, a, a human place um, in these environments that are flammable. How are we going to make safe, biodiverse habitations? That's what we should be trying to do, to maximise the benefit for the other organisms, but also to protect, you know, we live in houses, we have houses. How, how do we form that... Uh, that integration and and what probably the the point of difference I have with uh, Oliver is that what I see where indigenous um, knowledge comes in is is an incredibly critical piece of uh, hope that human beings can coexist with these flammable environments you take human beings out of the environment they become terribly dangerous but the sorts of future environment that we're going to have because of climate change and the sort of damage we've already done means that we're in a process of something which is going to be quite novel and syncretic and there's got to be a role for Indigenous people in that but there has to be a role for the non-Indigenous people to create ultimately a new sustainable Australian environment. That's the journey we're on and soon, you know, what we, in other words, let's snap out of this and say Let's imagine a future where there isn't such a thing as a bushfire crisis. There are bushfires, they're just not a crisis because <laughs> we've cracked the problem, just good. as the Indigenous people who managed <laughs> Australia 
had achieved that. We're going to have to achieve it collectively with a new circumstance because of climate change and the impact of colonisation. I think we've got to, um, we have to shift and have, pick up those extra priorities and ecosystems and whatever. We saw an example of that, of course, with the Wallamai Pine and yeah. the extraordinary mm. effort that went in, into that system. I mean, and just think if um, 25 years ago that na National Park Ranger didn't stumble across that canyon be because gone. otherwise it'd be gone. But uh, I think we can do that. I'd, it's, it's a much longer discussion. I think it's a bit of a cop-out giving other ecosystems standing and representation because I think it's, 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 it is a human system, a human political system and a democracy, and we've actually got to embrace those values of which you talk about more. The challenge is we actually don't give standing to, um, to people who even represent some of those things at the place. So there's, there's restrictions on standing to, to take things to court unless you have got a direct commercial relationship in many instances, and I think we need to tackle that first, but that's probably a, there's a bigger debate. Yeah. I was just going to say, we, we have a system for that. It's called, like, totems, kinship. Like, we have a process for, like, looking after country and making sure that all the species have a place and we're supported. And when we do our fire planning, that's exactly what we're doing, is thinking about those roles and relationships that we have and how we introduce and, you know, use a white fire. And so... These systems are in place, and I guess that's the proposition that we're saying is that we have these systems, they're in the land, they're written in the landscape with thousands of years of cultural practices and relationships have defined that. And what we're asking for now is support us so we can bring everyone into that space. Like Victor's saying, let us drive the car. We're happy to have passengers, um, yep. but we can't continue. We don't want to be in the car the way it's going. Yep. So there's a question from Ben. Uh, which I think is a very good one. How do the panel members believe climate science denialism has taken such a hold in our society and politics? Who or what is responsible and what can we do about it? It's a good question because denialism is not as prevalent in other countries where with conservative governments, with similar um, economies, but it is really prevalent here. Well, I think that they've been able to do that because there's been, obviously, motivations to do it, but there's also been gaps. Um, and as gaps in knowledge, and, and, and a lot of it has been more hypothetical, this bad thing may happen or there may be these consequences. What happened this summer is that we're, uh, we're, we're trying to get our minds around something that is truly astonishing. Um, and... One of the things I think is a really significant achievement is that the old trope of now's not the time to talk about this, nobody, that just vanished because you couldn't, it was an unsustainable proposition. It had to be talked about because this thing was so gigantic and the duration of it and the scale of it and the, and the ramifications of it were so incredible and still are so incredible um, that... We, we have moved as a society, and I think that the, uh, even the, the climate deniers have moved. They're now willing to admit that this was a truly extreme event, that there is a, a climate dimension to it. They're just maybe not so convinced that there's a direct linkage with, with anthropogenic forcing. It's the political economy, stupid. Um, we um, were colonised in 1788, in 1797 they started taking coal and exporting coal. Um, uh, but I actually don't mean that flippantly because then what we've actually did is then we've built in, so it's built into every part of our culture and politics and, and where they are represented and the stories they tell and also the fears that people have who've built an economy. Um, 
and often on, on, on good grounds, thinking well about this. I mean, my father was a head of the electricity commission out around Wagga and he used to take us out to see coal-fired power stations and the wonders that they were. And people, so there are people in those systems who really feel afraid that that's being devalued as well. So there's an, there are political and power relations, but there's actually human denialism that comes with that as but well. But there's another story to tell, that if someone would lead another story, there's another story that could be told about a future that has plenty of jobs in it. How we've transitioned, how we've moved from that, how we've, we've straddled, no we've straddled the barbed wire fence here in Australia. So on one side, we're stuck with that sort of political economy, but on the other side of the fence are all these great opportunities. I just wanted to add, I mean, in answer to the question of why is Australia different, we've got the highest media ownership by the Murdoch press of anywhere in the world. <laughs> but I'm very pleased to say that in January, 6.5 million Australians read Guardian Australia. <laughs> <laughs> And I think our last question is, uh, what would a Green New Deal look like in Australia? Just five minutes to settle that one. <laughs> no, I mean, that. I think it's, it's sort of a logical conclusion of where we've been going. Does anyone want to talk to that? Well, we've built, I mean, I've, I've worked on building alliances um, for the last two decades, and we had a great alliance with the ACTU, the trade unions, the Council of Social Service, the social groups, environment groups, and, and business groups have come on board. And what's remarkable is actually there are incredible um, alliances out there ready, mm. ready and willing to move. A couple of things to make sure you manage the transition. We talked about you've got to actually look after the communities and, uh, that are affected right now. Um, but I think it's actually important that you have clarity about where we need to be, and that's get net zero emissions and actually negative emissions. It's actually op opening up these other opportunities. And it's got to address some of those equity and other, other issues as well. So it's not beyond our wit. People have been working on this and been doing it the last decade or so. So what, what I, um, whether you want to use that phrase or not, um, because that, that may even alienate some people, but really the solution to the bushfire crisis is the mixed economy. We need regulation and enforcement, but we need innovation, we need investment, we need public-private partnerships. We need the full catastrophe, you know, well, the full... Yeah. <laughs> we don't need the full catastrophe. We need the full bag. We have of, the full the, catastrophe. We, have, the, the, we don't need the. We have had the full catastrophe. We need the full bag of tricks. But what, where, what is you know at stake is really to have a, an ideological battle about the Kodak moment, and then just say no, Kodak is fantastic. Print film, it's awesome. We've just got to keep doing this. It's just awesome. Whereas actually, if you can let go of that and move into the fact, suddenly there's this, wow, digital everything, you know, and everyone's got a phone now, and it's just so, you know, we can't even believe that people used to take a canister to a pharmacy, and, you know. So that's the sort of opportunities we have, <laughs> something that is so transformative, but that transformation has to be done in a mixed economy, and it's got to be done in a democracy, and it's got to be encouraged, and it needs political leadership, and I suspect that leadership is actually going to come from the local scale. Oliver? Yeah, I think it's a much bigger thing than the bushfires and the, the climate crisis. I think it's, to me, as an Aboriginal person, there's a bigger awakening that needs to happen around custodianship. And I think, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, we're trying to deal with sovereignty issues and treaty issues and all these underlying kind of factors, which I think have led to this, you know, from my point of view, we're here now because First Nations people all over the world have been colonised and because people have been detached from their relationships to the land. 
that's why we have climate change, um, because people are losing that connection and they're losing that sense of responsibility. And it's not just a local responsibility, it's a global responsibility, and that's the challenge that we have now. Like, you can't hide from climate change, you know, because it's going to be everywhere. And so there's some benefits in that, and that's what we should focus on, that there are these opportunities. There are opportunities that we all, as humans in this world we live in, understand that we'll be impacted and so we all have a responsibility to make change. And so we need a new deal which is actually supporting custodianship, supporting First Nations people all over the world to lead and to welcome people in that want to be a part of following the laws of that land that they're living on and the laws of the world that we live in. And that's, that's to me, the bigger deal that we need to make with ourselves and as communities. Instead of just focusing on our own sort of lawmaking, focus on the laws that make the world work. You know, like, how does it work? You know, like... It's pretty obvious, you know, like carbon, you know, oxygen leaves, like all these things are actually happening. They're scientific processes. People need to understand them and actually make the right decisions. Daniel. I think Oliver should have the last word, so I'll really just support what he said. I mean, we do have law here. We have Indigenous law and we have Earth law. And if we could better align ourselves with Earth law then I think we'd, we'd start to align ourselves with the planet in a much more... in a way that all beings might have the, the possibility of flourishing. And that's what we call cultural law. Yep. Like, the laws that come from the land, yep. that we don't make those yep. laws. Yep. There's laws that we make because of the laws that we learn from the land, and they're to look after the land. Lightning teaches us fire law. You know, it's a pretty powerful story. So um, that's unfortunately all we have time for. I think that if there is, well, there are many themes that came through the discussion, but the most powerful one is that if we're not getting the leadership that we need on this issue, we need to be the leadership that we need on this issue. Um, and I would like to thank our panel and I would like you to join me in thanking our panel for a really fantastic discussion. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.